How many of you brought your Bible this morning? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building this morning? And I want to ask you to join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, real easy to find. The very first book in the New Testament. We're in chapter 27, page 1042, if you have an old Schofield Bible. And what I want to do in just a moment is read a couple of verses, and then I'm just going to lift one phrase out of a verse, one sentence, and that'll be the message this morning. And uh, Matthew chapter 27. Let me join with Brother Zach and invite you back again this afternoon at 5.30. We're looking forward to having a good time together in the house of God this afternoon. And you know, the great thing about uh, Sundays is we could do this twice on Sunday. And of course, I'm getting to do it three times now. Many of us are getting to do it three times, but uh, we get to meet together and fellowship and hear good singing. Man, you ain't going to find any better singing than that right there in the whole world. And then get to hear a message from the Bible. And it probably ain't a great message, but it's great because it's the Bible, the Word of God. And uh, what a privilege to be able to come and sit and do this. And you get to sit there and I get to stand here and just have fun doing all this. And uh, so uh, church is fun, isn't it? <laughs> church ain't much fun, is it? But church is supposed to be fun. But uh, I'm glad, praise the Lord, I got to come today to the house of God. And I'm thankful that you're here as well. Well, if you're in the gospel of Matthew chapter 27, if you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. You may remember that back, way back in the middle of the month of January, we began a countdown to some very important dates that we would, uh, we would come through in the opening months of, of this brand new year. Of course, we, we counted down to daylight savings time, and we, we crossed that line last Sunday. And then, of course, we started counting down to spring, how many days it was to spring. And as of yesterday, we have now crossed that line. And then, of course, if you were to get your calendar out and count today, you would find out that we are 14 days or two weeks away from our celebration of Easter. And I'm really excited about our celebration this year. But with all that being said, then you may recall that beginning in the middle of January and leading up to uh, Easter in our Sunday morning services, I have been preaching a series of messages that I have entitled, Considering Calvary. A series of messages on the subject of Calvary. We have, as it were, in these Sunday mornings, been lingering at Calvary. Somebody said we go there for pardon. We stay there for power. I don't know of a more needful thing for you and I to do living in these last days than to hang around Calvary. I promise you this, if we'll somehow stay near the cross, stay near Calvary, we won't mess our lives up. Our life won't be filled with a lot of sinful, foolish drama if we'll just somehow stay near the cross. Can I have an amen? Well, we have been in these Sunday mornings lingering at Calvary. It is said that the famous French general, Napoleon Bonaparte, who died at the age of 51 from what most believe was stomach cancer, that he once said to a gathering of his generals while pointing to a map, he said, gentlemen, were it not for that one little red spot, I would have conquered 
the world. That little red spot we know now is a place called Waterloo. And it was there that Napoleon gathered his French army and forces together and there met the Duke of Wellington in 1815 and they were soundly defeated there at a place called Waterloo. He called it that little red spot. I wouldn't be at all surprised one day if the devil in hell don't gather all of his cohorts together and say to them, I would have conquered the then known world had it not been for that one little red spot. And we know that spot, that little place to be a place called Calvary. Because it was there on Calvary that Jesus, his heel, was bruised by the devil. But buddy, by the time uh, the three days were over and the smoke had settled and dust had cleared, Jesus stepped out of that tomb and once and for all delivered a crushing blow to the head of the devil. Had it not been for that one little spot and thank God for Calvary. You know, Calvary is the one event in the life of, of the Lord Jesus that God never intends for you and me to forget. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was born. We celebrate that every Christmas. But nowhere in the Scripture are we ever told to remember the birth of the Son of God. Now, we do so. We do so out of love, but not out of law. We also know that Jesus lived a sinful life while he was here upon this earth. He, not, he never sinned, not one time. But nowhere in the Bible are we ever told to remember the sinless life of the Son of God. We know that Jesus ascended back to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. But nowhere in the Bible are we ever told to remember his ascension back into heaven. We know that Jesus did many miracles while he was here upon this earth. We have some 35 of them recorded for us in the four Gospels. No telling how many miracles Jesus did. But nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told to remember the miracles of Jesus. We, we're told that Jesus spoke many parables while he was here upon this earth. Many stories, such as the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. Great stories. But nowhere are we ever told in the Bible to remember the parables of our Savior. But the one thing that we're told time and time again in our Bible is to remember the Lord Jesus dying on Calvary. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 we know of, possibly 14 of our 27 New Testament books, and none of those books did he ever say to us, ever tell us to remember a miracle that Jesus did. He never told us to remember a sermon that Jesus preached. He never told us to remember a story that Jesus told, but he tells us over and over again to never, ever forget Calvary. Never forget what Jesus did for us on the cross. In fact, can I tell you this? The whole gist of Paul's message, no matter where he went, his message was about Jesus and Calvary. We know that he traveled to three different continents. He started churches on three different continents, won thousands of souls to the Lord Jesus. But the one thing that he ceased not to preach night and day was the Lord Jesus on Calvary. In fact, here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 23, Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified. I don't know anything better to preach unto you this morning than Jesus and him being crucified. I could get into some current events. We could talk about things that's going on in this nation, but I'd rather talk about Jesus and him being 
crucified because that's the message that changes people's lives. You know, it's even a fact in our New Testament that God instituted the supper and we call it the Lord's Supper and the whole purpose of that supper is to remind us of Calvary, to remind us of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Next Sunday night as we assemble in this place and we partake of that bread and we eat that bread, we're reminded of his body that was broken for us on Calvary. As we drink that juice, which we'll do next Sunday night, Lord willing, we're reminded of the blood that Jesus shed, not spilled, but he shed for us on Calvary. Let me remind you that Calvary was no accident. Calvary was a divine appointment before God ever laid the mud seals to this whole world, before God ever set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God had already thought of a place of a hill called Calvary where Jesus would die as a lamb without blemish before the foundation of the world. I say again, thank God for Calvary this morning. You know, no matter how educated in the Bible you may become, you may know all the dispensations, you may have all the understanding of the toes and the horns of the book of Daniel. You may understand all prophecies and all mysteries, but I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you'll never get any deeper than the love of God that was demonstrated for you and for me at a place called Calvary. Well, did the songwriter say that it was at Calvary where the dear Lamb of God who left his glory above, who bore our sins to dark Calvary. Thank God for Calvary. You know, the last Sunday mornings, We've been listening, listening in. I guess I could say we've actually been eavesdropping on the Lord Jesus and what he said as he was being put to death that day at Calvary. And I think we come over these last two Sundays, we have come to realize that uh, some of the greatest statements that Jesus ever made, he reserved for that six-hour period that he was hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished, he said. And then he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. What statements Jesus made while he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. But this morning, instead of listening to him as he speaks from the cross of Calvary, let's for a moment walk around in the crowds that surrounded Calvary that day. Let's for a moment walk around in the multitudes that no doubt are standing at the base of Old Skull Hill and let's listen to what they have to say about the Lord Jesus, the man on the middle cross. You know, I got to thinking about this, but there's no telling how many people were actually there that viewed, witnessed Calvary personally the day that man murdered his maker. We don't know how many thousands, perhaps even maybe millions of people that were there around Calvary, around Old Skull Hill the morning that Jesus was crucified. We do know it was the season of the Passover and Jews from all over the world had made their pilgrimage there to the city of Jerusalem. Many of those people probably followed Jesus out to Calvary out of nothing more than just sheer curiosity. They maybe never even heard about Jesus, but the one thing that we 
we come to understand is while that mob was assembled around the base of old Skull Hill, there were some things that were said in that mob that were certainly true of the Lord Jesus. You know, I got to thinking about this. Some of the greatest statements that was ever made about Jesus were not made by his followers, though they certainly made some great statements. They were not made by his friends, though they certainly made some great statements. They were not even made by his family. No, sir. You know, some of the greatest statements that was ever made about Jesus was not by followers, friends, or families. They were made instead by his foes, by those who opposed him, by those who were his enemies. And as we mull around Calvary, as we walk through the crowd that day and listen to what was being said about the Savior, we come to understand there were some great statements made about the man on the middle cross that day. In fact, I ran across this statement. You remember those soldiers that came and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that night? I mean, Judas brought them out and kissed the very cheek of the Son of God, an indication to the which one Jesus was. And those soldiers took and they arrested Jesus. Well, when they got back, here's the, what they said about the Lord, the Lord Jesus. They said this, never a man spake like this man. Well, I want to say that's true today. Nobody's ever spoke like Jesus did. He spoke with authority. He spoke with power. But I'm telling you, when Jesus speaks, people's hearts are moved. They said, never a man spake like this man. I think about what old Pontius Pilate had to say about Jesus. He was the Roman official who gave official consent to put Jesus to death on the cross. And here's what he said about Jesus. Pilate said this, I find no fault in this man. You know something? You can't say that about me. Can I stop and say, I can't say that about me. You can't say that about you. But here is a man, a lost man, who said about Jesus, you know, having examined him, I find no fault in him. And can I just stop and say, in the 58 years of my life, I just want to say, I find no fault in him. There's plenty of fault to be found in me. You can find fault. You can find sin. You can find things to accuse me of. And you'd be absolutely true. But I'm glad I can tell you, having known him, having met him, I find no fault in him. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's holy. And he's true. And he's the son of God. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. I think about that day as we walk up old Skull Hill and we mingle amongst the soldiers that had put Jesus to death. We hear that old centurion, no doubt the very one who drove the spikes in the hands and the feet of the Son of God. And that old centurion standing there at the base of that cross says this right here, truly this man was the Son of God. I'm telling you there were some great statements that day made by those who were witnessing Calvary. But this morning, I don't want to focus in on all that I've just told you. Instead, I want to focus in on a seven-word statement that was made by the chief priests, the scribes, and the religious rulers of that day. Now, if you'll join, by the way, before I even get there, I'm sure that what I'm about to read to you was made in a derogatory sense. I'm sure they did not mean this as a compliment to the man on the middle cross. But oh, when they made this seven-word statement, you talk about a statement to be made. Let me read it to you. Look at verse 41. Matthew 27, verse 41. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, and then here's the seven words, he saved others. 
himself, he cannot save. Now, if I got those words counted right, there's seven words in that statement. They're standing there, no doubt, looking at Jesus as the life drains out of the Son of God. They stand there and they probably elbow in the ribs each other and say, Hey, he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. He's done. We've got him. He's finished. But oh, my friend, they just didn't know what they were saying. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to take that statement, seven words, and break it down under three headings this morning. And if you'll permit me to, and I'll not preach a long time, but I'd like to just talk about that statement for just a moment because believe this or not, in those seven words is the entire story of the gospel. Let's look at them together. First of all, I want us to consider verse 42. Let's consider, number one, the reality the reality of that statement. Now, I find it interesting that the statement starts with these three words. He saved others. Now, can I stop and say what a true statement. How true it was when they said Jesus saved others. Others. In fact, the whole life of the Lord Jesus, the whole purpose, the whole reason for, Je uh, for Jesus being on this earth to begin with is wrapped up in those three words. He saved others. In fact, could I just borrow the words of the Lord Jesus himself over in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10? Jesus said this, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Can I just say this morning, Jesus left heaven, Jesus came down to this earth and the whole purpose behind it was to save others. In fact, if you'll read through the four Gospels, which basically, basically contains the history, the account of the life of our Lord while he was here upon this earth, you'll find out he saved numbers of people while he was here on this earth. You see, as we read through the four Gospels, we come to understand, number one, that he saved some people from disease. That's right. He saved some people from sickness. You know, the Lord Jesus, while he was here on this earth, was in the constant habit of saving people from their sickness and from their disease. We have the record of the Lord on numerous occasions touching or speaking to people who had leprosy, terminally sick, people who were going to die, and yet Jesus spoke the word, and they were instantaneously cleansed from their leprosy. He, he saved others from fevers, like Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who lay and was sick of the fever, and Jesus touched her, and immediately the fever left her. He saved others from palsy, like the man in Mark chapter number 2, when his buddies broke up the roof and slipped him into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus saved him from his palsy. He saved others from paralysis. He saved many from blindness. He saved many from deafness. Oh yeah, friend, I would tell you something. When Jesus was here, he saved others from disease. Then he saved others from demons. We have the record throughout the four gospels of people who were possessed with demons. They were filled with demons. They were not only inhabited by demons, they were inhibited by demons as well. Their lives were a total wreck, a total mess. I'm thinking about the old maniac of Gadara there in Mark chapter number 5. I think about that young man in Mark chapter number 8 who had scars all over his body because he had thrown himself into the fire and his daddy had to watch him anytime they got around a, a lake or a pond, a pond because he was constantly trying to drown himself. Can I stop and say anything
thing the devil's ever touched. He's done nothing but contaminated and nothing but corrupted. And here are these men. Their lives are miserable. They're a mess. They're a wreck. Their life has run off track. I'm here to tell you, they want to kill themselves. They're a threat to themselves and a threat to others. But aren't you glad Jesus passed by one day? And the Bible said that Jesus spoke to them and the demons fled from their life. And the Bible said they were changed for time as well as eternity. I said all that to say this. He not only saved others from disease, but thank God he saved others from demons. But then we read that he saved others from disaster. You know something? Throughout the four gospels, we find the Lord Jesus saving multitudes of people from disaster. I'm talking about feeding hungry people when they were on the brink of starvation and Jesus stepped in and with a meager amount of food, he fed thousands and thousands of people averting, averting major disasters. I think about people who were rescued in ferocious storms or while they were on boats and on ships and storms blew up and Jesus rescued life and limb. Jesus saved them from sure disaster. Uh, he saved boats. He saved ships. He saved lives. Uh, he saved people from being widows and parents from being childless and children from being fatherless. I'm saying he, he saved people from disaster. You cannot put a calculation in dollar and cents. The amount of people that Jesus saved from disaster. Oh yeah. He saved from some, some from disease. He saved some from uh, he saved some from disaster. He saved some from whatever else I said about it just a minute ago. And thank God he saved some from death. Amen. We have the record on three different occasions in the four Gospels where the Lord Jesus raised people back to life that had been dead. Lazarus for four days, 96 hours in the tomb. Jesus walked out to the graveyard and said, Lazarus, come forth. And old Lazarus came forth from the blackness of that tomb. I said all that to say this. They said a mouthful when they said he saved others from death, from demons, from disaster, and even from disease. He saved others. I'm glad he's still saving others today. Amen. Had he not been saving others, you and I would have been absolutely without hope. I said all that to say this. When they said those three words, he saved others, I'm sure they were inspoken in a derogatory manner. I'm sure they were very disingenuous uh, about what they said. But I'm glad I can tell you no truer words have ever been said than those three words. Thank God he has saved others. The reality of that statement. I'm from the country, and can I say it like this? They said a mouthful when they said he saved others. I'm so glad this morning that I can stand up here on this Sunday morning two weeks from Easter and tell anybody in this room that's not saved, he's still saving others. I don't know how bad your life may be or how good your life may be, but I know one thing, everybody needs to be saved. Nobody can get to heaven without being saved. Acts 4 verse 12 says, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. You can't get into heaven without being saved. I'm not talking about joining the Baptist church, turning over a new leaf, or doing the best you can. I'm talking about being S-A-V-E-D, saved. And I'm glad I can point you to a Savior, and he's still saving others the reality of that statement. But next we move from the reality of that statement to verse 42. 
We read about the falsity of that statement. Now, how true they were when they said he saved others. How, how right they were. Spot on, dead on. They were so right. But they went from being so right to so wrong in a matter of just four words. Because they said, oh yeah, he saved others. Yeah, there's people running around all over this uh, Jerusalem. There's folks everywhere in Judea and Galilee. There's people. We've got the record. He saved others. Yeah. But himself, he can't save himself. How wrong they were. They looked at that situation through purely human eyes. They were acquainted with the beating that Jesus had endured the night and the hours before Calvary. A beating so bad that most men died while being scourged or else many men went insane from the inflicting of the pain. They saw him nailed to the cross. They were watching him there as the life literally drained out of the Son of God. They then, seeing all of that, reached the wrong conclusion, thinking that Jesus could not save himself. Can I, say, can I stop and say this? Jesus, at any moment, could have come down from that cross. Jesus didn't have to stay. Can I say this? He didn't have to go there to start with. You remember the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus had left those disciples on the perimeter of the garden? He had taken Peter, James, and John on the inside of the garden. And then the Scripture says Jesus went about a rock's throw away from Peter, James, and John, and he began to pray. And it wasn't long till he went back and Peter, James, and John were all asleep. And just a few seconds later, the rustling of the bushes and the lighting of the torches as the Roman soldiers come under the direction of Judas Iscariot. And they come and they, and they, and they take a hold of the Son of God. Peter, in defense of the Lord Jesus, jerks the sword out of the sheath and takes a swipe. And there's a man standing there who is a servant of the high priest. His name is Malchus. And if old Malchus hadn't a ducked, Peter would have took his head off without doubt. But he ducked, and as Peter swung the sword, he clipped the right ear of Malchus off, just fell right on the ground. I love it. Jesus just reached down, put it right back up there. <laughs> oh, what a Savior. Amen. What a Savior. Jesus then looked at Peter, and he said, Peter, put your sword up. Then he said these words, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father? And he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. In other words, I'm saying before Jesus ever got to the cross, all he had to do was say the word, and the angels with glistening swords in their hand would have rushed from heaven down to this earth to rescue him from the situation of the cross before he ever got to the cross. I read in the Old Testament where one angel in the Old Testament. One angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. Now you think about one. What could 12 legions of them do? 
Now, I know we sing the song around here, they, well, they could have called 10,000 angels, but it's probably more like they could have called 72,000, 144,000. How many ever angels down from heaven to come and deliver Jesus from that situation? We could have marched the whole crowd to the, to the battle of Armageddon, and God could have left the whole of humanity to be dealt with at the judgment of the great white throne. Oh, yeah, they were dead wrong when they said he could not save himself. Oh yeah. Anytime Jesus was on that cross he could have ripped the his hands and his feet from the nails of the cross. He could have come down. He didn't have to stay there. In fact I don't even know if you've noticed this or not but the whole time Jesus is on that cross for the six hours he's hanging there he's in complete control of the whole situation. I'm telling you, the mob is down below him, the soldiers are round about the foot, but Jesus never lost control of the situation while he's hanging there. I mean, there he hangs on the cross. Death is there waiting to seize upon him, but death can't even seize upon him until Jesus gives death permission to come and take life from him. The Bible said, the soul that sitteth, it shall die. Jesus had never sinned. He could not die. The only way he could die was to volunteer to die and death couldn't even seize him until Jesus gave death permission to take life from him. He's in control of the situation. Oh yeah, they were so right. They were so right when they said he saved others. They were so wrong when they said himself he cannot save because Jesus didn't have to hang there. So I move now from the reality of that statement to the falsity of that statement to the majesty of that statement. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that Jesus didn't come down, although he could have come down, he wouldn't come down. And the reason is standing right before your very eyes this morning. The reason Jesus didn't come down it's for people like you and for people like me. I got to thinking, you know, really, there's two reasons Jesus didn't come down. Number one, because of the Word of God and the will of God. I think about all those times, all those prophecies in the Old Testament that were made about Jesus on Calvary. You know, I think what the Lord was doing. You know, there are two times when He, when he cried, I thirst. And then when He said, it is finished, Right before those two statements, it said that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That the Scripture might be. I think when the Lord was hanging there on Calvary, what He was doing in His mind, He was going back through all those Old Testament prophecies, and one by one, He was checking them off. I've done this. I've done that one. I've done that one. I've done that one. Oh, yeah, here's one right at the very end. Ah, thirst. I've done that one. And then right at the very end that the scripture might be fulfilled, he cried with a loud voice, It is finished. And what he was simply saying is that everything the Old Testament said about me, I have fulfilled to the very letter of the law. He wouldn't come down because he is going to do the will of God. He didn't come down because he loved people just like you and just like me. Can I tell you something in reality? Are you listening? You know what Jesus was saying on the cross of Calvary? Jesus was saying, I love you 
this much. And he wouldn't come down. I read this week a very interesting story. I want to share it with you. When I read it, I thought, man, what a statement. The story goes something like this. It actually took place over in the Middle East. And there was this man and his house caught on fire. And uh, it's burning. And he rushed out of the house, saved his life while the house was on fire. But as he stood there and he watched his house begin to burn, he bolted back into the burning house. Only this time not to be able to make it back out again. He perished in the flames. When they were going through after the fire was out, they were going through the rubbles of his house, all of what was left. They came upon his charred body where he had been burned alive. And in his hand, he had a charcoal ivory idol in his hand that he had rushed back in the house to try to grab. And the headlines of the story about that man's life read like this, man dies trying to save his God. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad that I'm preaching to God this morning that don't want you to die to save him. I'm declaring unto you this morning a God who died in order to save you. And the only way you can get to heaven, the only way to get into God's presence is to come through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died, who would not come down. In fact, I said this in the early service. He would not come down so that you and I could go up. If He'd have come down, we couldn't go up. We'd have been hopelessly lost forever. What a statement. He saved others. How right. He himself he could not save. How wrong. But the majesty of it all is Jesus. You know, if there's one person that Jesus couldn't save. If I got up here this morning, I almost thought about calling the message this, the one person Jesus couldn't save. Do you know anybody you think is too mean for Jesus to save? I know a lot of mean people. I are one of them. I know a lot of mean people. But the only person that Jesus could not save is himself. And he would not save himself so that he could save you and he could save me. What a Savior. Thank God for Calvary. Let's pray. Father.